Yeah, no, we don't have to do anything with that. I don't know what to say to that. You don't have to say anything to that. I don't want, don't say anything to that. I hope that gets cut out. That's up to Michael, you know? You know? You know? You want to start us off? No. No, okay. I can start us off. I want you to, please. Well, I'm just trying to be generous. Um, All right. I want to get rid of summer colds. Um, Mm. Because they're the worst. A cold is... You know, it's fine if it happens to you, but in the summer when you get a cold, it's just the worst because you look outside and it's all nice out if it's a nice day, if it's a hot day. Anyways, I just don't understand why it happens. I had a summer cold. You had? I did. I did. Had. I, I, yes. Just, you haven't been just like a few days ago. seeing... I'm better. Good. Because I was about to be like, <laughs> we hugged. Yeah, we hugged. I licked your face. It's great. Yeah. Um, no, I came back from... Um, from wedding and immediately the day I came back just the next day I was just totally had a terrible terrible cold and it was like a beautiful day outside and I was just inside blowing my nose you know feeling gross and I'm fine having them during the winter honestly I am but I think during the summer it just is really sad and it doesn't make sense to me even though I know it's not really that you get a cold because it's cold out but like in my head it just it seems Incongruous, right? And like in the winter, everything just sucks. So you're like, yeah, like oh, great, fine. This like, too, I, yeah, whatever. this is just on theme, right? Exactly. And then, but like when it's summer, you're like, I want to go do this. I want to go do that. This yeah. is hugging season. Hugging season. Hugging season. Yeah. Hashtag hot girl summer. I. It's a th- apparently it's a thing. Like there are so oh. many little boards. In my neighborhood, I have a very, I live in a very trendy neighborhood. Like sandwich everybody. board things? Is that what they're called? I wonder they're called what they're called. Yeah, board. a sandwich board for this like vintage thrift shop. No, it's like get your hot girl summer looks at oh. sign Friends, because um, Friends is the name of the store. <laughs> and okay. yeah, no, do we, yeah. Um, yeah, very Got weird. Got it, yeah. Um, but, and I've been hearing it in various well, podcasts interesting but yeah you can't media. have a hot girl summer if you have if, a if hot you got, cold yeah also like i i caught like i started like choking in the gym today and i was like brag um <laughs> <laughs> i was just in the gym yeah but um <laughs> i started choking and then i was coughing and i couldn't help but think that like the person next to me because we were on like mm. cardio machines, like, they were like, "Get away from were you, what, why are you coughing at the gym dude? with the cold? Why are you coughing? Bro? Yeah, like, bro, you gotta use the hand sanitizer, bro, bro, bro. bro? Do you even sneeze, bro? <laughs> like, and I was just sitting there being like, I'm just choking. It's okay. <laughs> yeah, I'm fine. It's fine. And so like, I'm just like feeling the water in my lungs as I'm like, okay, just just leave it, just leave it. <laughs> Perfect nice. segue because my thing yeah. I want to get rid of is um cardio bathroom breaks um so i Say more. okay yeah allow me Please do. um <laughs> i uh brag uh, numero dos um <laughs> had to pee. do cardio for like long periods of time Whoa. Right? like what's a long period of time and uh, like an hour um, it's a long period of time to do cardio. And like you're running that whole time or you're like elliptical right, or something. Right. Yeah. Exa- exactly. Um, exactly. Ellipticizing. Yeah. Um, and, you know, saving my knees for the future. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah. So what is, I, now, of course, go to the gym in the morning, just had like coffee, hydration is important or something. So I drink water too. 
And then, yeah, the science is not yeah. in. Um, it's paid for by Gatorade, actually. Um, not a lie. Um, that, like, all the, like, eight cups of water a day stuff, that's mm. actually, like, not real science that's, mm. like, paid for. Gatorade um, Yeah, it's, like, paid for by sports drinks and, like, hydration companies mm. to, like, manufacture. It's more of a form of native advertising than it is an actual scientific study. Moving on. Um, but, yeah, that just, in it, much like my uh, aforementioned maybe having to pee right before bed, uh, I'll, like, be going into... <laughs> I'll be like getting on the machine. I'll be getting on the machine mm -hmm. and I'll be like, oh, I think I have to go to the bathroom. Mm. So then I either have to like collect Leave all my things, go to the bathroom and then come back or I have to spend like potentially 60 minutes just like running being like, this is, this sucks. Yeah. Or I'm going to have to like, cause the question is, am I going to be able to go 60 minutes or am I going to get like 17 minutes in, right. have to remember the calories burned and the time so that cumulatively I can make an hour. Cause I don't just have endless time mm -hmm. to spend in the hymn so that I could just like, Oh, Oh, I only, I missed 15 minutes. I'll do gym. an hour on the second time. And then everybody knew it was just, Jim Gina. It took me a minute everybody and I wanted to catch up gym? with you. I didn't want to waste my time thinking about it when what? I could be listening to the next thing you're saying heard it appreciated mm -hmm. um but yeah no and so the past like several times i've just had to commit myself to taking a break at 30 minutes to go to the bathroom yeah. and it just feels like such a capitulation right to you don't get the... the demands of uh my body and i would like right. to think that my mind is in control of my and body. i have to say when i'm on <laughs> when I, I go to the gym too well, are you ooh, uh, brag? I, I brag i also go to the gym holy shit um i haven't been in like two weeks though whoa um, brag whoa but like i'm always impressed when i glance at someone else's treadmill and it's like you know they're on minute 48 and i'm uh -huh. like all right so you it's like they're gonna oh he's only on minute five but you're like i'm on minute 35 and you don't know that because it's all about what other people think about you oh That's right why you go to the gym well like I, honestly when you started saying that my i was totally thinking of like when you look over and you see somebody who's like been going for 35 minutes and they seem fine and mm -hmm. they're like moving really quickly and you're like damn how are they doing it and then you see that they're actually on like level three instead of like level 15 or 16 like you are and you're just like what how are you how are you even able to like run on an elliptical that's set at three <laughs> because the resistance is just like so low mm -hmm. how are you not just like flopping around mm -hmm. um yeah, so I, I, I then start <laughs> to judgment. judge those yeah, people. Wow. Yeah, I so again, it's all about look. I'm wrecking those knees. Yeah, destroying them knees. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Besides, I thought you were done with jogging anyway. Uh, after your outside, I'm after, done with jogging outside apparently. Okay. But I also, once it gets to be fall, I'll probably jog outside again. Mm -hmm. But you might get a fall cold. Um, <sighs> no, I it's okay. It. But you know, I uh, also, I'm afraid of treadmills. Mm, are you? Yeah. Of falling off of them well or? it's sort of like a dock situation you ever try to run on a dock like a dock by the water like yeah. a doc like a dock that a doc no the other i what? mean i just have never no i've never run on a dock okay so um i've never seen like long docks that you could run on for more than dock? a few minutes yeah, I mean, like that's plenty of time. Okay. It's just just okay. getting up to. Well, a you were run. talking about a sixty minute right. run. Right? No, no, so not, like, not a sixty not minute, a 60 dock minute run. dock run. No, no, yeah, no, no, no. But it's just like like 
basically, I can run in a straight line so long as I don't have to. Once you make <laughs> me run in a straight line, I'm like so concerned with running in a straight line that I, mm, I just exact. am so terrified that Into I'm going to like put my foot half on the belt, half off the belt, ah. and then I'm just going to like mm-hmm. flip around and... Yeah. Go into the water. Really hurt yourself. Yeah. On that treadmill on the on dock. On that treadmill dock. Yeah, you treadmill got a, you don't got a treadmill dock. on your dock? Yeah, duh. Well, I'm, I'm from dock. Charleston. We all have treadmills <laughs> on our docks. Um, I guess we should Let's do this. Do, it. do this. Gina. Steven, Gina. Steven. Steven. Welcome. <laughs> to Should We Keep This? It's the Cultural Review Podcast you know and love, and it looks over the past 50 years of music, television, film, yeah. challenging your nostalgia to give the question... Should we, we keep, keep this? this? I'm Stephen Moskus. I'm Gina Stevenson. And today we're going to talk about Beverly Hills Cop and Amadeus. It's 1984, baby. 84. Big year. Yeah. Big year. Because of these two movies? Yeah. Because of stuff. the novel. Oh, 1984. Yeah. That was the title of the novel. Right. It's true. That yeah. is true. Um, yes, yeah, so 1984, this is, um, the year of, you're not going to like this one because it's whatever. Well, I actually, I, I feel like I had one that I've forgotten and maybe I'll think of it again, but I would love to. Great. You're yeah. always just trying to one up me on my Well, I'm one just trying to see, see how really like. similar our wavelengths um, are. This is the year of distinct laughs. Am I right? Am I right? All we got right. Amadeus. All right. <laughs> And then right. Eddie Murphy's laugh is just amazing, but like so unique. Right. Right. It's like very like deep and like single, like a single peel. Right. It's very cool. Right. Like it doesn't, it doesn't really elide. It's like, right. ha, ha, yeah, ha, right. ha. But he's like actually laughing. Right. So distinct laughs is what this year is about. Okay. It has nothing to do with the movies. Um, I'm going to start us off with Beverly Hills Cop. That's the one I saw first. Is that the one you saw first? That is the one that oh I saw gosh, first. Oh so in sync. This is the top grossing movie. It's your classic fish-out-of-water cop action comedy. Um, it follows Axel Foley, who is a savvy Detroit cop um, who plays by his own rules and ignores protocol and authority. He's very smart, very good cop. Mm-hmm. I know. Um, uh, towards the beginning of the film, his old friend Mikey shows up at his apartment with a bunch of these German bearer bonds. I had to look up what he was saying. Bearer bonds. So they're these, Oh, you don't know what bearer bonds are? I just was like German. Is he saying bail bonds? Is he saying nah. bear more bear, fucking bear, bear bonds. bonds. Like, I... Okay, so we have watched the film Die Hard together. Yeah. That's just, like, another fucking right, instance yeah. of 80s obsession with goddamn bear bonds. Yeah. You can't buy bear bonds anymore, but they were the dumbest fucking idea exactly. that I've ever heard of in my entire life. Like, oh, oh, let's just buy millions of dollars in shit that, like, if anyone has it, they can just get all of the interest on it, you know? But mm. it's bullshit. Well, that's what he shows up with a big old stack of... Um, and he says, Mikey says that he got them in Beverly Hills, which is where he's been for the past six months, I think, um, ever since he got out of jail. Mm -hmm. And while he was in Beverly Hills, he was working for their other friend, this woman named Jenny, who now works at this upscale art gallery there. Um, so Axel and Mikey have a great night together catching up. And then these two men show up, they knock Axel out and they kill Mikey, um, right there in front of Axel. Um, Foley, uh, so Axel's boss warns Axel not to pursue this case um, because, you know, he's obviously very close with the person who was killed. But uh, Axel heads to Beverly Hills anyway. Whoa, my computer just turned off for a sec. It's back. Um, Axel heads to Beverly Hills to figure out what happened to his friend. And when he's there, he finds Jenny, the 
friend who works at the art gallery. Through her, he learns about the suspicious gallery owner, who's this man named Victor Maitland. Um, when he tries to speak with Maitland, he gets thrown out by Maitland's like many, like seven security guards, uh, and gets arrested by the local Beverly Hills cops, who proceed to tail him around town. Uh, eventually, he ends up becoming friendly with the, the two cops, Taggart and Rosewood are their names, um, and through a series of snooping around investigations, f- putting pieces together, Axel figures out that Maitland is smuggling drugs in through the gallery uh, and decides to take him down, uh, which ends, despite, you know, there isn't the right protocol, they don't have a search warrant, none of those things, but he's like, I'm going in, uh, and so it ends with this, you know, giant, basically, shootout at Maitland's home, Taggart and Rosewood end up helping him, and they kill Maitland, and they succeed, and uh, they lie about what happened because they have to, you know, pretend that everything happened the right way. Otherwise, mm-hmm. they would be in a lot of trouble. Um, but they do that successfully, and they end up happy. That's pretty much the movie. Dope. Yeah. Um, yeah. So this film made for fifteen million, made three hundred and sixteen. Was nominated for original screenplay, and it won the Grammy mm. for best soundtrack um and a lot of the songs like the neutron dance were made for the soundtrack um let me just, let me let me pull up some of the others oh oh the heat is on the heat is on is another one that like i just thought was a song but it's actually made mm-hmm. for the soundtrack mm-hmm. uh, the heat is on oh. is on the street also if you've ever like owned a synthesizer and you've just put on the autoplay where it went dun do you know the version where it also then adds like bang bang these like really weird like <laughs> voice okay never no mind. i don't gonna, uh maybe uh, is it like a cell phone ringtone <laughs> maybe i don't know where i heard it but it's like the only version i knew so when i was listening to that song it's basically in those silences there's mm-hmm. just like this weird like badum bad like weird voice adding nonsense anyways it's not no i don't um i've never heard i'll try to find it i'll send it to you it's entire life it's a great life entire but yeah it's called axel f um but yeah so um axel foley was uh eddie murphy was actually like fifth on the list it first went to stallone who did like a big rewrite (laughs) and made it into one of his style of action movies um apparently mickey rourke was attached for like four like hundred thousand like had a four hundred thousand dollar contract but pulled out um and then they tried to get uh richard Pryor, al pacino and uh james khan and then it eventually went to eddie murphy and then they rewrote rewrote it to be more of an action comedy Hmm. um it was the director's breakthrough martin brest who went on to direct sin of a woman um but also directed uh Gigli, so kind of balances out in terms of whether or not he was a win um and then also the eddie murphy um this is like one of his first big movie roles um but he was like the biggest comedian, almost like the biggest comedian in the world at the time. Um, his special Raw had come out two years before, and this was between Raw and Delirious. Um, no, it was between Delirious. Raw came out afterwards. Um, yeah, and then little did I know, if it were not for this film, he would have been in Ghostbusters. Um, really? Yeah, but he had to not- turn... Like, oh, like oh. that. Dan Aykroyd wrote hmm. the role for... Wrote a role for him in Ghostbusters, but he had to turn it down because he was mm-hmm. attached to this movie. Right. Um, and then 
Just the the only two other people that I want to talk about um, in this, uh, Stephen Burkoff, the guy who played Victor Maitland, is one of the founders of something called In Your Face Theater, um, which is a, a form. It was a European sort sort of theater of cruelty moment where like uh, the language is usually filthy. Characters talk about unmentional sub- subjects, take their clothes off, have sex, humiliate each other, experience unpleasant emotions, and become suddenly violent. But he's a uh, he's actually referenced by Queen in a song called "I'm Scared." He says like I'm scared of Stephen Burkoff. Um, Jeff Goldblum is in a movie where he auditions for a Burkoff play, and it's like a parody of a Burkoff play where it's just skinheads like cursing at each other. Um, Fun. And then uh, Paul Reiser. This is his like break one of his like earliest films. It's his second film, and he's arguably having the best twenty first century of all of them. Which one? Paul Reiser was the guy in Chicago who's like not his partner, but remember when he when Eddie Murphy in Detroit? Chicago yes. Yes. <laughs> wow. Um in the Midwest, Midwest in is, the Rust Belt. Crazy over yeah. There, here but they're um holy hell. I've really I'm blown over time. Um <laughs> but yeah Paul Reiser was the guy who like basically is the Judge Reinhold of Detroit. Mm. Um who like is kind of his partner who's like um, gotcha. yep. yeah, he's like, don't the, the boss is looking for you and you're yeah. going to be in trouble. He's like killing it. He's in stranger things. He's in, uh, red Oaks. He was in whiplash as the dad. Like he's, he's like the most relevant of all of them right hmm. now. Interesting. Yeah. 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 Cool. Also, oh. if it weren't for the soundtrack, uh, this is what catapulted, uh, Patty LaBelle into a solo artist. Fun fact. Wow. So that's a cool fact. Job. Um, great. Well, let's talk about Amadeus a little bit. Amadeus, Amadeus. Amadeus, Amadeus. Exactly. We don't own that IP. <laughs> Sorry about it. The best picture winner. Mm-hmm. What is that? Quinn that was song? That too. It's just like an 80s song. It's just oh, like okay. a, like, I, I think it might be like Mr. Mister. Okay. Never mind. Whoever. I, I just know. realized that. It's in the. It's in that like, yeah. group of songs with like Kyrie Eleison and that's just, it's like just right. eight. Don't even no? Know. no, I just dubbed it. Kyrie Continue. Okay. Uh, Amadeus. This is the best picture winner. It means um, Lord have mercy. I don't um, know why they made like an 80s hair metal song about it, but they did. Why not? They, did. they yeah. can do whatever they want. Right. Um, this movie is set in Austria in the 1700s, um, late 1700s, mid 1700s. Mm-hmm. Under the reign of Joseph II. To, mm-hmm. yes, so, uh, yes. So, you know. So you know when that, that is. You, you all know what that, when that is. Yeah, you know. Um, we, don't the, pa- we don't want to talk down to we you. We don't want to pander. We'll condescend. Yeah, okay. we'll condescend. Yeah, Thank you. Yeah. You almost said pander. Is wrong. I did, and Con- then you did the say word. it, and I was like, oh, no. no condescend <laughs> so, is the right, right word. Right. We do want to pander. Um, the elderly composer, Antonio Salieri, who has just attempted to take his own life uh, and is placed in an asylum, narrates the story of his relationship with the one and only Mozart. Ever heard of him? He's a big deal. What? Um, so Salieri you know, narrates a story and we see that ever since he was little, Salieri wanted to be a composer, had a strong belief in God. Uh, when he grew up, he became the court composer to Emperor Joseph II. <gasps> um, meanwhile, Mozart, who has been famous since he became a child prodigy at like the age of four, basically, um, arrives in Vienna and Salieri is very eager to meet Mozart because of course he's heard his music and he's heard, you know, believes that he's a genius, but he's horrified to learn that Mozart is childish, immature. Libertine. Just, mm-hmm, yes. Just kind of a, kind of a douche. Um, yeah. Uh, yet, uh, of course he's still mesmerized by his amazing talent because he is just 
incredibly talented. Um, The emperor commissions Mozart to write an opera. Uh, Mozart, I'm just going to like say a bunch of things that happen. Um, Mozart marries this young woman, Constanza. Constanz, Stanzi, Constanza, as he calls Stanzi. Um, who's the daughter of his landlady. Stanzi. Stanzi. <laughs> um, and the whole, essentially, like, the real big movement of this movie is just that, is, like, Salieri's jealousy, awe, you know, just kind of injustice feelings mm. uh, about how, in his mind, God has bestowed such incredible talent to someone who he sees as very undeserving. Um, and so Salieri essentially is just trying to use his position and his power to really destroy Mozart, take him down. Um, Mozart struggles to find work. He drinks a lot. Um, and when Mozart's father dies, Salieri comes up with the idea that he'll disguise himself and commission Mozart to write his own death mass. Um and then that he will also kill Mozart once the piece is finished and then take credit for this beautiful piece of music himself as something he wrote for his friend Mozart. Um, And then from that, he'll become famous. Uh, Mozart becomes sicker and sicker the more he writes this. Meanwhile, you know, we see a lot of the operas that Mozart has written and as well as operas that Salieri has written. So a lot of the movie is like we see clips, uh, moments from these operas. Uh, And Mozart finally dies um, without having finished the Requiem. Uh, He's buried in a mass grave, which is kind of crazy. Uh, and Salieri's kind of closes the movie with this, this his final struggle with the idea that God uh, decided he would, you know, destroy this perfect talent just to keep someone mediocre like Salieri from, from sharing in the glory. Uh, and that's, so he just kind of ends, you know, as bitter and jealous uh, as he started. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's that. So, yeah. Movie. Which, what you think? Um, what do I think? Um, so this movie is seen as like one of the best films of all time. Um, by whom? By, so it was nominated, not just a bunch of lists. Like Mm. at the time (laughs) it lost, it lost, uh, three of its Oscars, five of its BAFTAs, and then like two random other awards, but it was nominated for 52 awards and it won 40 of them. Um, It won eight Oscars, picture, actor, director, costumes, adapted screenplay, art direction, makeup, and sound. Um, And then, um, yeah, so it's seen as like one of the best. It is one of five. It is one of five best picture winners to break into the top five of the box office on any weekend of its run. Hmm. Um, Yeah. There's only five. Um, In all time. All time. Yeah. Amazing. Um, And then, so Milos Forman is the director. We talked about him because he directed one flew over the cuckoo's nest. Um, Saul Zance is the producer. Um, funnest fact about him is that he discovered, he bought a record label and, um, like the first thing he ever did in his career was buy a record label and, uh, discovered that there was somebody in the warehouse that was a band signed them. And that was, uh, CCR Creedence Clearwater Revival. Um, and much of the movie was apparently financed off of their profits. Um, but then he's also the one who like filed the lawsuit against John Fogarty for stealing CCR's IP, even though he wrote all the songs, so it was just like it's seen as one of the like most laughable cases in intellectual property history because he was like sued for ripping off himself, um, which he did not. Uh, he Fogarty won that that case. Um, 
But then, uh, so it's got F. Murray Abraham, um, the guy that plays uh, Mozart, he, Tom Hulse, 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 um, he's like big Broadway star, Quasimodo in the animated, um, Disney, in the animated Disney, Disney film of the, the one of that has Quasimodo in it. Yeah. Um, and yeah, basically, um, almost everyone in this film is like already big, um, already working, and Jeffrey Jones is in it, who plays Joseph the Second. He so good. Ooh, he is good. Um, he is a sex offender okay. of the worst what kind. Could you have Sorry. Said that <laughs> He's so good. Wait, what do you mean? No, he's a great sex offender. Um, in 2002, wow. he was arrested for child pornography um, no. because he Aww. solicited um, the 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 boy in question was 17 years old, um, and he had pictures of him. He like solicited for um, nude photos um, at the time. At the time of the case, the boy was 17. He was 14 at the time that the pictures were sent. So, um, which those photos were the child pornography that he was in possession of. Um, and then he was also arrested twice for not uh, updating his status, like his, um, his like Facebook when he, status. Yeah. His Facebook status. He never, <laughs> Facebook is like, it's been 12 weeks <laughs> since you said you were a sex offender. Um, and then this was, um, you know, whose breakthrough role this wasn't Cynthia Nixon. It was not. She was so young. She's so young. This was her fifth feature film. Oh my God. The year that this came out, she was in two Broadway shows. What? And she was in. How old is she in this movie? Oh, she was going to Barnard. She was in. She was like 18. Oh my God. That's crazy. Um, Yeah. And then the very next year, she was in a play. It's a relatively unknown play. Um, But at second stage, opposite Jeff Daniels. Like, she Crazy. just was wow. already a star, despite That's unreal. just yeah being, being so freaking <laughs> young. It's crazy. Um, and this was written by Peter Schaefer, who also wrote the play upon which it was right. Is one of his two. He is also the playwright who wrote Equus. This was the play that he wrote after it. Um, and very clearly, man likes narrative driven, narrator driven. Uh, <laughs> Place. Narrative-driven place. Narrative-driven place. I love those too. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, but a cool thing, um, the Mark Hamill was did not originate the role on Broadway, but he was the replacement on Broadway for Mozart. He was originally contracted to play the role in the film, but because of the success of Star Wars, he was dropped because he did not think that people would like – be able to handle him not being Luke Skywalker. Wow. Yeah. That's so interesting. Huh? Yeah. So that was like, so the guy who played Mozart in the film did not play Mozart on Broadway. Broadway? No. Got it. Ja. Um, Um, let's get into this because I'm interested. Ja. Yeah. Is you? So, all right. Uh, we're going to talk about Beverly Hills Cop first. Well, we're going to do our thing first, Stephen. Where have you been? Oh, I don't know. I just, I'm I'm just so hung over from your wedding. (laughs) Oh, God. Um, Yeah. yeah. Okay. One. Two. two, Three. None. Amadeus. Mm. None. Amadeus. Good. Maybe. Cool. Interesting. (laughs) 
Let's do it. Okay. Beverly Hills Cop? Yeah. Let's into it. Let's get after it. Let's get into it. As Chris Cuomo this... says, let's get after it. Great. I don't, I don't know that reference, but I'm going to move on. Um, yeah. I was really excited to like this for this movie to be one that we keep because the positive things about it, I was, I, my first thought was like, oh, it's kind of like the opposite of the sting where it was like the, in the sting, it was like part of the setup was that, you know, whatever his name is, Robert Redford's like friend oh, who's yeah. like this You're, black man yeah. gets killed and then like the whole movie is like this white guy supposedly avenging him but actually just like going on his adventure and totally. so like in this one i was like oh like it's amazing eddie eddie murphy is like really really good in the movie and like he has this you know it starts and he has this friend who is white and who dies and then you know he is the clearly the lead and you know avenging him but also like being a really good cop and really mm-hmm. smart and really savvy and like all these great things Um, but I couldn't stop feeling like it was actually like a weird, like a tokenism thing. Did you, I don't know. This is not my main problem, but like there, it was weird to me that he had no, I I mean, for hearing that there were all these other actors who it was offered to first, like, um, I slightly maybe changes my, a little bit about this thought, but I feel like it was really apparent to me that like he, as a black man had no one in his life who was also black who he had a positive relationship with like his his boss um who is black like was 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 sort of like a tough like tough love kind of like he supported him but also he was like you know he's his boss like so right you know and he is in a Uh, position of leadership in this like municipal police department right which is which is great but like uh it just I, i don't know i just like felt kind of uncomfortable when i was realizing like there is no one else who's a person of color in this mm-hmm. movie. Uh, and like that just feels weird. Yeah. I, I'm wondering about, I wonder if it's because the, once he leaves Detroit, then he's in like groups that are no more than like two or three. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think, I think there's like this, maybe it is, maybe it is tokenism. I don't know, but I definitely feel like with him, with his friend and the fact that like, I think there was something played to the fact that like, he's got this like white best friend who's always like in and out of trouble. And then he's got this other best friend who's like a woman and there's no talk of any sort of like romantic relationship between her and either of them. Um, that it, it's kind of this, attempt at displaying like at, at, at some sort of progressive display mm-hmm. of yeah. 80s America. Sure. Um, right. But then maybe there's also a problem of like, he's coming from Detroit, right? And so Detroit is impoverished and that's where the film depicts all people of color. And once they then go to Beverly Hills, they're then just no more people of color. Mm-hmm. Everyone's white except for like one there's one police Waiter. officer as well. Like there's one of the cops, not the two that are tag- tailing him in the beginning, but there's... Oh, 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 oh. actually, um, yeah, like the another, replacement cops right, once they, right. yeah, because the they get foiled because the two cops that are sent to tail Eddie Murphy when he's in Beverly Hills get foiled by a banana in the tailpipe. <laughs> Classic romp. Classic. <laughs> um, and then because of that, they get knocked off and these two other cops get reassigned and, and one mm-hmm. of them is African-American. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, I I don't know. I do like you said. I 
because there a number of people were looked at that were all big stars mm-hmm. and they were not all black. Mm-hmm. It does imply to me that like Eddie Murphy's star power mm-hmm. got him the role, yeah. not like tokenism on part of the producers or the directors. Um, right. But I, but I feel like there is something like once he's cast, like it feels, uh, it feels very like suddenly even more, uh, obvious like just there it just feels like an oversight of like why are there no also there are just no black women there's no women of color in this movie at all and like he no i mean there's 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 almost no no women almost no women there's no female cops anywhere and i'm like there would be there gotta be at least a woman on Mm -hmm. one of these police forces somewhere right you know and Um, then also um you know he's got like no family of any kind or mm-hmm. friends, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, of any kind. obviously by taking him, you know, 2,500 miles from his home, right. obviously, you know, you're divorcing him from that family unit, but mm-hmm. like he's basically only angered to this earth by these two people, one of which is killed in the first mm-hmm. 15 minutes. Yeah. And I was wondering that too. I was like, how do these people know each other? Like the three of them, like what is Oh yeah. Is it's never their... explained. It's I don't think so. Like they, Maybe yeah. school. I think it's impli- I think they it say like they that like she friends. went to school. I think okay. there's a conversation of how she uh, knew Axel Foley, and when I think that German guy um, is interrogating her about how they know each other, mm. and she says something about them going to school together. Mm. Right, um, right, right. Yeah, but my, for me, like the biggest problem for me where I think it's like really got to go is the message of like cops, Holy uh, shit. Falsifying reports being like a positive thing slash a joke slash like let's, we can easily get away with it and we sh- and it was right for us to have done. So right. is just a really troubling it's like, message. It, it's like the French connection in terms of like, it's couching these really, really insidious messages about police behavior but through this action comedy and through these people, Eddie Murphy, that we that we love or like that are super charismatic, mm-hmm. that are then delivering these messages that are just heinous. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think and it and it made me I started to realize I was like, oh, uh once at the very end when there's a, a shootout at the the evil German guy's compound. Um, they have a moment where Judge Reinhold looks at his partner and goes, you know, this reminds me of Butch Cassidy. (laughs) And I was like, hey, we're getting to the point in the podcast Uh, where we're going to be like referencing previous episodes, uh, things covered in previous episodes. Um, But he's talking about like Butch Cassidy and he's like, he's saying that he's a cop with a glorified image of these criminals and he feels really cool to be in their position when they were criminals that are being apprehended by the police. (laughs) And so he's sort of drawn this line where like, we are like criminals and these criminals are like police. Mm. Um, And it seems like it's flipping this sort of, Western, I think it's like a, a 1980s, I think 
it has become this kind of new version of the Western genre to have this sort of action cop comedy um, because they're the like these, t- you know, like tough guys that get to do these like shootouts and they're, you know, you're there's all, all like all this talk about Eddie Murphy being a, a good cop. But he like breaks all the rules. I'm like, he's not a good cop. There's just nothing. If if they're not, if he's destroying a city, if he's doing all this, if he's breaking all this protocol, like then he's not mm-hmm. a good cop. Um, yeah, yeah, and like the judge Reinhold, so that the partner did kind of give him a look like you're an idiot when he said that. But but totally. Well, yeah, was... and he was like, you say that. Oh no no no, he didn't say that. He was like. He said something like thanks, but then there was another part where he did something. Yeah, I think he was like, like, you do that again, I'm going to shoot you myself. Yeah, yeah, that was, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, no, it's really troubling. Right, and there was another moment where like, there were a couple of moments that were really shitty policing that was not really questioned by the movie at all. I think it was like, uh, like there was a moment where he, when he first gets kicked out of the German guy's um, shop or whatever, when he's like, he goes to talk to Victor Maitland about his dead friend. And then his, he has like six cronies pick him up and throw him through a plate glass window. Mm -hmm. Because obviously when you're that rich, you just break your windows. You don't go to the door. Well, you break your windows. That was my thought. But then it was about like, the playing off the race, the expected racism, it seemed of the oh, oh, cops, like, you know, yeah, because I wondered about whether or not the cops were crooked. Mm-hmm. Um, but the movie actually never indicated that he had paid off police, um, that, that Victor Maitland had paid off yeah. police. It was always that he was disturbing the peace. Um, well that made me think like, cause that, and this actually goes back to the thing of like why it felt so strange to me that there were no other, people of color as characters is like, I feel like part of the movie with Eddie Murphy in it, that that like became part of the script, including that moment was like, they threw him out the window so that it would be because like cops pulling up when they see mm-hmm. a black man in this like fancy place with a broken window, they're going to assume that he broke right. the window and was trying to like cause some mayhem or something, right. you know? And so I thought that was part of their plan for why they like threw him out right. the window um, and then cause later at the, when he comes, checks into this fancy hotel, like he also, you know, yeah. plays off of the racism uh, that he's, exp- you know, projecting such onto a stupid these people. Moment. I hated that. Yeah. But I mean, so, no, no, I mean, actually yeah, I thought the part that dealing with race was really, really funny mm-hmm. the way that he handled it. Um, but it, because he, he like pretended to be a journalist that was being discriminated against cause he knew the hotel was fully booked and he was mm-hmm. trying to get them to get a room anyway. Right. right. But, um, the, the thing is, like, he passes cheaper hotels, but then he goes to this super expensive hotel, and then when they tell him that it's super expensive, he's like, uh, uh, oh, uh, okay, cool. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, you knew. Yeah. What, what is this? <laughs> you knew. Yeah. Um, but my point with the, with the first time he gets kicked out of mm-hmm. the bad guy's uh, place, like, the police... A moment that I don't think is interrogated at all is that like they see that he has a gun, right? Mm-hmm. And because it's it's at his waist and his waistband, and they pull it out, and then because he has a gun, they remove the gun and draw theirs, mm-hmm. which 
means that they have disarmed him, which means he's no longer a threat. And then from then on, they are treating it as if their life is an imminent threat. Like that is a, a, a kind of faulty policing that is, I do not believe questioned by the film. I don't actually think that they draw the, the lines toward police brutality that, that is existing in that moment. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. And I, and I feel like part of it, like uh, this being still relatively early as far as like cop shows or cop movies, like having actual, like we now are so used to cop like procedurals and things that at least, you know, that I feel like a lot of my understanding of what actual police procedure is comes from media, you know, more than, Mm -hmm. you know, I don't know, researching it or the news or something. So like part of it, I feel like is that this was sort of early enough in the wave that like there wasn't as much care as far as, is this the proper procedure? I guess, although later, though, since the point of the movie is that Axel doesn't follow proper procedure and that these two cops do, then actually I take this back because I feel like they should be doing exactly everything like to the to the T of how it's supposed to be done. And L.A., Mm -hmm. the L.A. police department has one uh, like has of the poorer police records with regards to police brutality towards Mm African-Americans than as a. Metropolitan Police Department could have. Mm-hmm. Um, so the idea that they are taking it seriously, like like the fact that Eddie Murphy, a police officer, gets punched by a police officer, mm-hmm. and then that guy's boss comes up to Eddie Murphy and is like, do you want to press charges? And that if this violence against him is taken seriously. The movie mocks it, and Eddie Murphy mocks it. Mm-hmm. Says, where I come from, cops don't press charges against other cops. Mm-hmm. It's like whoa, that is, like, this other guy was unilaterally correct mm. in how he should be handling the situation. And and it's almost a joke that the police department is behaving with integrity and accountability. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, totally. And that's, like, right. I feel like part of the movie is actually trying to, like, it seems like it is, you know, playing up, or not playing up, but just, like, using showing the racism in a system as like part of the plot of the movie and part mm-hmm. of the character development. But then at the same time, I feel like it's trying to pretend that also the, the world is totally colorblind, you know? Right. Oh, so that's, that's like such a weird, a weird thing that is like both, both are happening at the same time. Yeah. It seems to be, um, I think we're probably going to end up with a number of like eighties sort of wishful thinking where we're painting the world as like, a place where everything is like perfectly wonderful to like give, I don't know, like a a sort of like therapy, like a, it's like therapeutic for suburban America Mm -hmm. to be watching these images so they can pretend that everything's fine. Um, because we're like not yet in sort of a, uh, an internet smartphone culture where people who are, not fine can actually show anybody. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. but this is also another reason that this is like a really insidious time for a police movie to be behaving this way is that you've got the revving up of the war on drugs. Um, you have, uh, LA is the place where like SWAT teams originated. Um, and from, so from 1980 to 1984, the FBI's, this is just a number of things that I am 
that I was curious about and looked into. Mm-hmm. Um, the FBI's drug enforcement budget went from $8 million to $95 million. Mm-hmm. They, there was something called the, the Comprehensive Crime Control Act of 1984 that established the uh, mandatory minimums. Um, it prohibits, uh, it establishes the three strike rule. It prohibits alcohol during parole, which I think is, I mean, I get the idea of, you know, uh, crime, like things that are criminal being, being banned while parole and being considered a parole violation. But Mm. if it, if it's legal, it's, it should be legal. Mm -hmm. Um, and then, it authorizes like consideration of the defendant's life outside the limits of the crime in question, which like should be, I mean, the, the idea of like a character witness, but like it basically, nope, I'm not going to add any more facts to, to it. Mm-hmm. Um, it created like the range of sentence sentences. It created like when people talk about like, Oh, this, that like, Oh, don't do that. That's five to 10. Mm. Like that was created by, um, basically the sentencing board was created by this act as well as, um, it gave like, it just, it was this massive, massive, massive bill. Um, and it also, let me see. It authorizes, here we go. The surplus that surplus federal property be is able to be transferred to state and local authorities, i.e., the militarization of police when you have uh, like federal military like weapons and defense um, ordinances um, that like that surplus can then be passed on to local authorities, and of course, if something such as say a military industrial complex were to exist in some way, then those surpluses are always going to exist. So those things are always going to be passed on because there's a profit incentive, mm-hmm. uh, for the companies that are producing them. And so like for films like this at this time to glorify the police in this way and that like police shootouts or some sort of like cool thing for like people to be doing then or for cops to be engaged in then it's it's helping create the like militarized police culture that we're trying to undo now yeah totally just snaps to that Mm -hmm. another reason that this film i think has to go is the homophobia. Mm. This film is like, uh, have you ever watched any of Eddie Murphy's stand-up comedy? If I have, it was a long time ago, so I don't. It's like know. hilarious. If you watch Raw, it's like hilarious, delirious, hilarious. The only problem is that when is that he there he'll go into bits that last like 15 minutes long. I say the only problem as if it's not a huge fucking problem for 15 minutes of an hour to be devoted to a wildly homophobic bit that like utilizes the homophobic F word like Mm. over and over and over again. Um, Yeah. It means that like all the times that like, like 
being gay appears in this film, it is done purely as a joke and at the expense of gay people. You have uh, Damon Wayne's working as like when he when you know we've mentioned the banana in the tailpipe. Well, that's bought from Damon Wayne's, who's very clearly like he's working at a. He's like the fruit. He he just works for the hotel, right? In but their it, it, food, they have like area. there's just like a, a big old table, table of fruit, <laughs> and which putting that together, this gay man is at this big old table of fruit, and he needs fruit, and he's like, "What do you want?" He um, and he's speaking, you know, with like lots of sibilant s's and very effeminately, mm-hmm. and you know, Eddie Murphy's like, you know, just a banana, and he's like, oh. And then he just like gives it to him for free. And um, then there's another moment where they make um, a joke where he makes a joke about um, Victor Maitland that he and like he, they, Victor, the bad guy goes to this like rich people club uh, to eat lunch and Eddie Murphy wants to get in to interrogate him. And so he tells the maitre d', he's like, okay, well, you can tell him. And he, like, puts on an effeminate voice that he's been to the doctor and he's been tested and he tested positive for herpes 10, mm-hmm. simplex 10. And the guy was like, oh, well, I think you better tell him that yourself. And he was like, thank you. Well, like, the joke there is very clearly about, like, HIV mm-hmm. in the black gay community, which mm-hmm. is in no way f- funny. Joke. Mm-hmm. Like, and then also, you know, I'm kind of like, fuck you, you shouldn't get to get away with it because like at the last second, like by mentioning herpes, it means that they were either the studio stopped them from using HIV because this is Reagan and it's 84 and I don't even think Reagan had acknowledged that HIV exists at this point, but like that. Yeah. I think it's actually, I don't know the answer to that question, but I think it, he has yet to acknowledge the existence of HIV. Um, and then, and so like by mentioning it, but like they're very clearly pointing to it and alluding to it, but, but they chicken out at the last moment from actually calling it out. And then also it demonizes like, herpes herpes simplex in a way that I'm just like so tired of. Mm. Um, I mean, obviously it's the begin. it's like at the beginning of, you know, making jokes at the expense of people who get cold sores, but like still it's just fucking stupid and pharmaceutical propaganda, not a lie. I feel like I'm a conspiracy theorist this episode mm-hmm. where like, you no, you don't need to drink water. <laughs> yeah. That's all. It's a conspiracy. <laughs> Um, and big pharma is coming to you. They want you to drink water and mm-hmm. yeah. No, fuck this movie. Yeah. Also just to add the last thing for me of, is of the, the one female character who is just so without personality and without any, anything. Right. Um, and her really, I mean, she, she does like, she has the keys. So she helps, uh, Eddie Murphy, like get into this warehouse where they find the drugs. But, Really, otherwise, her entire role is to be, like, the damsel in distress who has to get rescued in the end, essentially, you know? And, mm-hmm. like, also, you know, just there's there's a lot of just comments about, like, oh, 
yeah, you look good or you filled out, you know, it looks good on you. And, you know, and there's just like, there's gratuitous strippers. Just don't oh have yeah. To the be strip there. club scene. It's like, Oh fuck. There's the- a lot of just like checking out random ladies on the street. Um, Oh, and so like they go to this strip club and you think like, oh, they're in a strip club. And it turns out he's actually foiling these two bad guys. But those bad guys actually don't end up connected to Victor Maitland, if I'm not. No, not at all. Yeah. So it's pointless, except for like the point of it being about him getting closer with the two cops. Right. But they definitely don't have have that in a cafe, man. Yeah. Yeah. Could have done it anywhere. Yeah. Also, this is something that I'm struggling with is it's very clearly before we sort of demanded authenticity with like how people move with regards to like policing and, and holding guns. There's just like Eddie Murphy, like when he mm-hmm. walks into his apartment, cause he, he's coming home in Detroit and his door is open the way that he like checks to see where yeah. anybody is. It's like, that's not how you, you would be trained laughable. to do it. Yeah. yeah. And <laughs> yeah. then, but again, yeah, but then, and then there's another time that like those guys in the strip club, one of them has a shotgun and he's got his thumb over the barrel. Like no one would ever do. The reason that there is a wooden handle there is because that barrel mm. is going to get fucking hot <laughs> because an explosion is about to happen right. inside that shotgun. <laughs> like no one would do that. Mm-hmm. But then part of me is like, well, wait a minute. Am I demanding this authenticity because like this, the like insidious nature of this film that I'm, that like I fear for what it's sort of foreshadowing. It's because it has occurred. And now I'm like unsatisfied by any sort of media surrounding firearms that isn't like cool and real mm-hmm. and like super authentic. Cause also I'm kind of like, I'd, why do I want them to be great at showing people how to use mm. guns and shit? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Also, he fucking takes the heroin or the cocaine. Like he does the thing where they like, they always do that in like all the bad cop movies. They're like, ah, oh, it's heroin. You know, right. and you're like, you, what? Yeah. <laughs> there's a, there's a direct reference to that in the movie. Um, uh, oh, Showtime. The movie Showtime, it's Eddie Murphy and Robert De Niro, and Eddie Murphy is a, a, a TV cop, and uh, Robert De Niro is real cop, mm-hmm. and so they're like, they have to go do some weird, you know, meet cutie thing where they have to work together, mm-hmm. and William Shatner is training them, and Eddie Murphy, there's a part where they're like, looking at like how to deal with drugs, and William Shatner is like, he tastes it like he he sees the powder puts it to his tongue instantly he knows it's cocaine <laughs> and robert de niro goes what if it's cyanide <laughs> nice. yeah. and they look at him he's like that's why cops don't taste drugs yeah, <laughs> like, yeah it, that's great yeah it, oh my god yeah should we talk about amadeus sure amadeus um okay so you want to get rid of it yes i think we can keep it because okay so this i was thinking about what you had said we've talked about, about the idea of like, is the, whether or not a movie is quote unquote good, like does mm-hmm. that, is that what we're judging? And I feel like as far as like personal tastes, I used to really like this, like I had you had seen it before. seen it before. Yeah. Yeah. I'd seen it before. Oh. Yeah, we talk about that. And I used to really like, like it a lot. And I just like ha- hadn't seen it in a while. Um, and I mean, I, to me, I feel like I realized three fourths of the way into this movie. Maybe I was like, oh, this movie is 
an opera. Like it just essentially like is an opera as far as like the drama. I mean, aside from the fact that they're not singing, it's like the drama. And also there are of course opera moments, but like it's long, it's dramatic. There's a lot of, you know, those sort of heightened emotions, high tension, like lots of music, like mm-hmm. all these things. And it just, and I feel like I personally don't like the opera, um, but I can appreciate its quality and it's, mm. you know, it's, it's artfulness, even if I don't like it. Um, you've certainly been to the opera more than I have. <laughs> I've been um, to the opera twice, I think. That's and two more times. Than me. Yeah. Um, yeah. you know, and so my biggest, honestly, like, I feel like my biggest complaint about this movie is that it's long and a lot of the sequences don't like feel very repetitive, but that feels very opera like as far as like the repetitive sequences are the moments where we see like the music and we see the operas being played out. And if you like opera and you want to see that spectacle, like it's very, it's visually and design wise, it's very beautiful. Um, but it is just kind of like more of the same thing, you know? Um, yeah. So, yeah. And I feel like the, as far as the characters and the story, like there is something really interesting and really, I think, kind of always relevant about this question of talent and jealousy and like, where does talent come from? And why do some people who just want so much to be artists just not have like, what is that thing that you like, you just don't have or you, or you have. Um, and, and I feel like, and, and seeing, and honestly, I think this, I mean, this play I know, or this movie, like there are a couple other plays that this definitely inspired as far as the structure of it. Um, and I feel like I don't actually know if this is, I don't know of examples before this one, but of like pieces of art where like the, essentially the villain is sort of the narrator and stuff is like, like Hamilton kind of does that also. Mm -hmm. Um, and I know M butterfly, you know, is like David Henry Huang says that he literally like took this structure and applied it to that to create that play. Um, and so I feel like also just structurally, um, that it's important to keep this because it has been the fodder for a lot of more mm. art that is really important and really um, effective. Um, Something way more trivial than than M. Butterfly is uh, it seems pretty clear to me that the wig scene where <laughs> Robert, where he's being um, fit, where Mozart is being fitted for wigs, mm-hmm. um, the that seems to me to very have very clearly inspired the scene in Mrs. Doubtfire when Robin Williams is getting fitted for his, like his wig (laughs) because it's, they have the, cause you know, it's very clearly gay wig makers that are fitting him. Harvey Firestein is the wig maker for, oh, um, is Doubtfire. like helping fit Robin Williams. Mm-hmm. And, um, I was like, I didn't see him in Amadeus. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. No, so it just seems to me that that's like a, I did notice, so we actually haven't talked about it, and I've been much more tight-lipped about things that have been inspired by uh, either mm-hmm. movie. And it seems to me that I wondered how the result of, like, a, the ne- the second generation, basically, of filmmakers who would have sort of been inspired by, like, the, what's the word for it? Cinema Nouveau? What it, I don't know, whatever. There was like the movements of film in the seventies that then Mm. get 
basically built off of, and then also you have a combination of that and like Horizon figuring out how to tap into markets and really sort of realizing how to exploit the marketing element of movies that like where, how that would like affect um, cinematic references and like, what it seems to me is it has really spread things out where you've got, you know, this movie um, referenced a lot, but like in vague ways mm-hmm. where it's like instead, almost, almost like we're getting a new generation of tropes um, where it's, you know, the, the films of we're kind of getting to the end of things that are setting the new tropes. And then it's like, okay, the studios are like, this was successful. We're going to sort of be reworking these things in new ways to tap into the money of that. Almost um, when we were talking about Jaws, we talked about Spielberg being like a wolf in sheep's clothing that he like seemed like he was part of the like new Hollywood movement, but was actually helping to reestablish the studio system that it seems like we kind of, have that now and I'm losing the ability to actually frame this into a uh, comprehensive argument but it seems that like we're getting a new world of like insular or like a a new world of 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 tropes where it's like you know uh, Beverly Hills Cop starts to be referenced a lot within the world of action comedy uh, cop dramas such as um, 48 Hours, also Eddie Murphy, but then also um, like the Lethal Weapon movies. There's lots of like crossover in sort of uh, motifs and and tropes. And then you also just sort of get lots of film making reference to from this generation on. It seems very clear that like the 80s seems to be like 70s. There's like a lot of generation and then from then on you get a lot of like maybe it's that there's this new world of people who are sort of reflecting on their influences and we're just closer to them or it's the creation of a lot of uh, safe bets where it's like these things have worked in the recent past so we're going to perpetuate them which then leads to a system of believing that they're more right than other new riskier things did I talk long enough that you can't tell what I was talking about (laughs) Maybe. I mean, I'm gonna, um, I would like to, I would like to hearken back to, and for the listeners the first time, um, I made a speech at your wedding, Gina, that began <laughs> with me saying, um, you know, that I didn't know exactly, I, I, could, I struggled to figure out what to do, so I should just do what I'm best at, which is spend <laughs> a long time building to a singular point, <laughs> if we're lucky. <laughs> so yes. I've just displayed that this in full force, I think. Good, great. I love it. Um, but you, well, yeah. tell me why you want to. Why I want to get rid of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, and, and you know what, I've decided because I'm looking at one particular note that I'm going to um, hearken back to. I'm going to invoke Gina of 1970, which mm-hmm. might actually be me hmm. 
starting to participate in a feedback loop of an insular world that is either either making a safe bet that is then going to make it seem like it is a more... Fa- I, I don't even remember oh my, my own God, wording, but like <laughs> basically I'm doing what I exactly what I accused Hollywood of doing a minute ago, but I'm going to actually say that I do think there is a way that I would prefer to remake it. Mm. Um, hear that, Peter Schaefer? I'm better than you. <laughs> um, no, um, so good things about this um i do think that the acting is good um i do think that the if, if marie abraham's makeup like looks oh, amazing so good. it yeah, makes me wonder great. like what the fuck is wrong with people who are like trying to use cgi as aging mm. now i mean i'm sure that one day we'll get to the point where like it's so good mm-hmm. that we don't even have young actors anymore because like old actors that are like successes are able to just sort of be CGI'd into young actors. Um, <laughs> terrifying thought. Right. But like mm-hmm. Will Smith is playing mm-hmm. opposite himself as we speak. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, like opposite his 22 year old self, like as we speak, um, you look like I didn't know. You don't know what I'm talking I about. Don't know There's don't. a movie like coming out with Will Smith where he's like, it's sort of like looper uh, where he's like, uh, like some sort of crime, de- something about something uh, with time travels involved cool. and he's facing his younger self but he's playing both parts wow. and through CGI, he is being like aged down. That's crazy. Um, cool. So I'm already right is what I'm saying. Mm. Um, but yeah, like F. Murray Abraham's makeup looks amazing. He looks so old. Um, <laughs> I did think it was weird that they chose to include the, um, the moment where Joseph the second after the, Abduction of the Seriglius, Raglio, I don't know how to pronounce it, but his first opera that he writes in German, um, there's sort of an apocryphal um, tra- German uh, translation of the German that Joseph said to him, which was too many notes, that there is a... All, people have said that that's sort of an improper way to translate it, that it's more, that it'd be better to translate it as like a great many notes or certainly a lot of notes, which is still just a stupid thing to say, um, but not necessarily. Like a criticism. Right. Um, however, they did not include his last words, which are, you know, all, no last words are ever real, except for I, I bet that Ulysses S. Grant's were real because his were just water. <laughs> And then he died. Um, yeah. And like if any lame last words are probably real, but like any like dope last words, right. probably not fucking yeah. real. Um, but his last words were the taste of death is on my lips. Whose last words? The Mozart. Emperor? Mozart. Oh, Mozart. The taste, the taste of, of death, death is on, on my lips. lips. I feel something that is not of this earth. Whoa. Yeah. Like, why didn't he do that? Why didn't he yeah, say those words? So he just dramatic. dies while they're looking away. You know, it's just waxy. Right. I, I'm silly. Um, also, thought it, I thought it was weird that the so the cover of the of the like the, the cover art, the poster art, the production materials are all of you know this. It's sort of like a maestro in like an eyes wedge, you know, a giant eyes wedge shut mask. Well, to learn that that's the his father, his father in a mask, I felt like his father in that mask, in that image, was like a very sort of trivial passing point of the film and not nearly something that like... It was a big deal to Mozart. And then it became the disguise that 
Salieri. Salieri used, used. yeah. I, I wanted to say consigliere <laughs> just now. <laughs> Salieri um, used. But, yeah. sure. Okay. Also, so you the, change the poster art. You add right, that I just last line for relevant. Mozart. Um, oh, I haven't actually gotten how I, to how oh, I okay. make it. These are just things I didn't like. Great. Also, didn't like that... Um, uh, <laughs> What chill dog? What are you talking about? I'm um, a chill dog. Don't worry. <laughs> also, don't worry. Uh, uh, you said you didn't like he was buried in a in a common I didn't grave. Say I didn't like it. I said. Wow. Oh, you liked that he was buried in a mass grave. <laughs> you liked it. I love that. No, um, but that's actually not true either. Oh. That like common graves, it just meant it was individual, but it was unmarked. Mm-hmm. They have since located it. It's been located for like 150 years. However. Um, Despite having located it, they were often like empty, like excavated after ten years. So by the time that they located, he was likely long gone oh, for still around. Oh, like a, like a, a long, long time. time. Um, <laughs> and they don't actually know where his like bones or anything are, but they do know where he was buried, and he was buried in an right. individual. I'll give grave. a creative license. Um, it was dramatic. Yeah, they were sure they were poor by that moment. Sure, um, but no, it was. The, it was simply just the fact that he wasn't a wasn't royalty that he was buried in a grave like that, not because he was like a pauper or anything. Gotcha. Um, and no, the way that I would, I think it's just so bullshit that they have. I think it's weird that this is described as a rivalry, like a movie about a rivalry. There's no rivalry. There's no rivalry because Mozart never feels like Salieri's a rival. Salieri is just on his own hell bent on destroying Mozart because he's mad at God for giving Mozart the abilities that he felt like he should have for himself. Mm-hmm. Um, or that he, you know, he made the deal with God about because like when he's a child, he makes a deal with God that he would devote his life to him. Um, but that if he makes him famous, um, now the way that I would remake it, aforementioned singular point reached um the way that i would remake it uh did you see the last match at roundabout no so it's going to be described but in the context of amadeus um i would set it i would instead of having it be in some sort of mental asylum where um you've got consigliere in my head now where salieri (laughs) has like tried to commit suicide for his like uh, regret over feeling as though he's killed Mozart. Um, instead of that, and then he's in this asylum and he's um, reckoning with that and telling the story of this thing. Um, I think it would, I would have liked it better to have it be about the, all right. So there's an improv form called a Spokane. Are you familiar with it? No. Um, it basically means that there's like a base scene that they're doing and like maybe they go on some sort of like comic run where they go do a bunch of different scenes, whatever, but everything always comes back to that scene. Um, I would have that scene be them in the bed writing the Requiem Mm. and him helping him. And then it would spin out into monologues about how, Basically, what's going on with, I guess since Mozart's dying, it makes most sense to have it be primarily Salieri, but Salieri then breaks out to talk about how he's feeling in the moment, like in the context of writing 
the Requiem with him or like experiencing Mozart's genius as, as Mozart is relating it to him, but then also having that and those moments of like being in awe and envy of Mozart's talent, then help him like launch from there into moments where he has attempted to sabotage Mozart and like different times he's run into Mozart throughout his life that then keep coming back to that because I just felt like the scenes in the asylum were just so divorced from the plot. I mean, maybe this is the the problem with it being a film and that if it were uh, like on Broadway, it would probably be like when it's on stage, he's probably just in an ambiguous plane. Yeah. And so there's just no knowledge of where they are. And he's just sort of in this kind of ephemeral landscape where then he's then cutting out out of the real world into just nothingness. Like that makes sense to me because that's kind of what happens in Equus. I think, I think a lot of times the doctor is, is monologuing to the audience, but in sort of a nebulous space Mm -hmm. and then cuts into the, the, room with Daniel Radcliffe or the room with Daniel Radcliffe's mom, et cetera. Um, it's always Daniel Radcliffe. It's always Daniel Radcliffe. Um, but that's well, how I would mm-hmm. remake I it just to make, uh. just to make this. I just feel like it needs to, I feel like it's kind of too divorced from the plot. Also there's just, I, I don't, I don't know if I like opera. Ain't never seen one. Um, well, you've seen this movie, so you have. <laughs> okay. I take it. Okay. Um, on a related note, I have been, not the time, not the time to not talk time. about whether or not, not I've, I've been looking at the Met Opera and like point. trying to go to, Finish great. Um, so uh, more on that, never. Um, whether or not you like opera. You whether or not I like opera, I think it's just so overloaded mm-hmm. with shit that is not relevant or at the very least like, could be condensed. It is not important that this movie does not need to be three hours. This is a two hour movie that has just been too many notes. That's what I would say. (laughs) Too many notes. Um, You also watched the director's cut. I did fucking watch the director's cut. 25 plus minutes longer. I watched a two and a half hour movie and you watched like an over three hour movie. I, uh, so I just, I, I I think this has become, this will become just more of a like taste thing probably. But I really, I think, I agree very much that on stage the device and the frame of him being narrating would work a lot better, I think. Um, but I feel like it's so important, like the distance of it is so important to Salieri's journey and struggle. Like the fact that he's been sitting in this these feelings of guilt, but also such jealous awe and like hatred and love. Like all these things have just been like, he's been surrounding himself just in these feelings for years and years and years. And like, and the fact that by the end, like even after all this time and even after that really amazing moment, I thought when he was dictating, when Mozart was dictating the Requiem, like Salieri has not, Salieri so effectively becomes this like horrible creature who I just want to, I just like hate by the end because I see, because in the beginning I'm like, yeah, this guy is an asshole. He's, it's so annoying that he's so talented um, and then by the end, it's just like, he will, he has never given this up and he's just like wasting away in his own, in his own like world that he's built where his, everything is unfair. And it just like that also to me communicates so much of the story that like, I feel like if it was all taking place in the real time of 
you know, in sort of the present day of like when they were both alive together, like you just wouldn't take that, those like decades of emotion that, that wouldn't be a, a layer of the story. So off of that, I guess the problem that I, I think that I was still experiencing and maybe just not putting words to it. Um, you helped me do that. I don't feel like there's enough of a play going on in the present day. I don't, so like the question that I'm, I'm, I'm just trying to figure out, we spent, he's telling this story to a priest because the priest is trying to save him. Mm-hmm. And then he's like, I don't need to be saved because of all this. But like, he doesn't actually change. I don't feel like there's not really, there's not a story going on in the present day in the, with the 80 year old Salieri. But, and I feel like for me, that's part of the point. Like anytime a character, a character not changing is also an intentional thing. Like the fact that he is, he's probably in my, like before the priest came in, he's replayed this whole story every day on a loop for himself or something. And finally he has someone to tell it to. And the fact that he will, he will not change also tells me as the audience, something about what to do with, this experience. No, I don't accept that. I just, you know, I don't, there are plenty of stories where characters don't change and that is the point of it. I just don't, but, but he's not, but, but so what I would say is he doesn't have to, he doesn't need to, he doesn't need to change, but nothing is happening. Nothing is, there's no, there's nothing where he's really being made to change and is resistant to it. There's at best, a moment where a priest is like, I'll pray for you or something. Mm -hmm. And then we get three hours of, 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 of nothing of like, of him. I I don't understand what he is attempting to avoid through not changing. What, what are the stakes of him changing or not changing? Like what's, well, yeah, what's actually I mean, it's happening? It's definitely just there. a device to tell the story. And I don't A, a big part of it is a device to tell the story. But I feel like good. there is, it gives us a reason to tell the story. Like that we're seeing it from this, this perspective of years down the line where he still will not let this go. Yeah, I... I uh, I just feel like if... And that we as the audience are like we become the priest. So we become like the judge. We, we are, we are put in a place of like, how do we judge his actions and how do we judge his perspective? You know, which is another, to me, that's another problem because I think in, in this case, we really should be Salieri because like we are, you know, when he's, I I also hate that when he's leaving and he's saying like mediocrity is everywhere. I absolve you. And they're just, he's in this asylum and it's very like very sort of frightening the people who are sort of the mm-hmm. insane people, the fellow interned people, but like really everyone below Mozart is the media. They are the mediocrities of the world. Mm-hmm. So like really we should be, trying to interrogate when we have been Salieri, like when we have been hateful or spiteful towards somebody because of their abilities, because they're, because we're jealous. Like, yeah. Well, and I felt like I was doing that cause I was really on board with Salieri for the first like half the movie. 
actually, cause I was like, oh man, yeah, I feel you Salieri. Like there's this person and that person and that person and they're all doing so well and everybody loves their writing and their writing is really good, you know, mm-hmm. like, and then, but then I just kept seeing the, like him go descend further and further. And that allowed me to be like, oh, hold on. I, sh- I need to adjust my own, you know, feelings towards other people or whatever, like not bear this jealousy through the rest of my life because that's gonna kill me, mm-hmm. you know? Um, yeah, but yeah, my yeah. final, my final reason for wanting to get rid of it initially, like I would be, okay, the reason that I would be okay with remaking it in the fashion that I had done it is that the base scene would have mm-hmm. plot, would mm-hmm. have narrative. I feel like the base scene as is has no narrative. Mm-hmm. And so then it's like, what are we watching this for? Mm-hmm. Um, but also I feel like it is part of academy culture where like this is to me so divorced from like even though it is one of the only movies to make like to break the top five box office that that's one best picture like that just means it gets worse like that like it just i dislike that it seems to me to be a lot of it just seems to be for the academy it seems to be like a movie for the Academy. It doesn't seem like it's even, uh, for, Hmm. I don't have like a great wording for it, but it's just when we think, when we look at now, you know, award bait, you know, now it's like, well, don't say it anymore, but it used to be that if like the W came on at the beginning of a, uh, movie trailer, um, the Weinstein company sort of production card, if it came on at the, at the beginning of a trailer, I was going to be like, oh, I bet this is going to have all the pieces that it'll need to win some kind of Oscar. Mm-hmm. And then it's like, oh, it's a period piece where Alan Rickman and, and Kate Winslet are talking about the gardens of Versailles. That sounds like it's going to be boring as fuck <laughs> and it'll probably get six Oscars. Mm-hmm. Like, it, it just seems to be very much of that ilk. Mm. Good word. No. We needed a pretentious moment for today. <laughs> Ending a sentence on ilk. <laughs> um, yeah. Do we, should we see? If, I don't think our opinions have changed. And this is the first time I think we've ended with a disagreement. Mm. It, oh, you're right. Because I folded on Return of the Jedi. You did. You're absolutely yeah, right. I, made you fold. I, I folded <laughs> on it. Now, now, how do we, do we feel like I have reclassified my answer based on this whole last right, match would, thingy? That you would. That I would remake, remake it? Yeah, I think you can say remake. But you're saying don't remake. <laughs> Keep saying, it as is. Perfect, perfect baby. Perfect, baby. <laughs> I mean, don't you dare I'm not touch saying it. It's perfect, but I because honestly, part of the reason I don't want to remake it the way you said is because the structure thing is is the thing that was taken like for M Butterfly, and I feel like for Hamilton and like various other things. This idea of like the person, the antagonist in crisis or like full of these emotions that they have held for years telling the story of what happened like and and in the other examples that character does change so that's great like an m butterfly there is a definitive action at the end that the character takes right but so i feel like that structure is part of what has to remain so that those things can use it and improve upon it don't roll your eyes at me (laughs) um one, two, three. 
Amadeus, let's keep it. You can disagree or you can agree. It's well, fine. Well, look, I don't fucking know that I care about oh, great. Anne Butterfly good. or even Hamilton. Oh, like, okay. I don't know that I care. I mean, okay. well, I, that's, we need I, to make another episode <laughs> so we can talk about that. Well, no, I mean, we to me, it's like if it just was this great movie that also won Best Picture that was structured a different way, then like what else would it have inspired? It's like it doesn't necessarily mean that like, okay, sure. Maybe we'd have lost two particular things, but maybe we would have gained two particular things that maybe, we would then be talking about saying we can't change all the Amadeus because is, we don't know what yeah, happens. No, we don't. Universe. And so I'm going to roll the dice on oh. that parallel universe. <laughs> Great. And say it's a good, one. so right. a good parallel universe. It's a good parallel so you're universe. remaking it. Yeah. Go for it. Have yeah. fun. Yeah. I applaud your efforts. I look yeah. forward to your remake. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, great. All right. Shall we close this out? Let's close it. Um, uh, I just want to give a brief update. Um, I have been moving along more quickly in Swan's Way. There are a <laughs> lot of... There's a lot of steeple talk. Um and a little bit, again, very circuitous. Um, a lot of like. What? No, it's, no, a lot of what? <laughs> well, it's just he's you know he's got a lot of issues with his his mom and his mm. aunt, right? Mm. And then oh, and fine, I'll stop. You can I'm make, getting no the faces that I'm uh, getting. I'm sorry. I'm faces. I no, just don't want to. I'm sorry. Also. I just, I just feel like I can't go on. Um, please continue. I please. I'm sorry that I made no. you feel. I would love no. to hear your Swan's Way podcast that you make, as well as the next, the one where we talk about why it's important that you care about M. Butterfly and Hamilton. Well, that'll be another podcast. Um, great. We're gonna do the end up things, and then I will close out with these things. The, um, like. What are the, Thanks for listening. This is a Rock Rising Productions podcast. That stuff. Why do that? Follow oh, we us. can do that. Yeah. That should Thanks. Keep this. Thanks for listening. This is a Rock Rising Productions <laughs> Thank podcast. You for repeating it. Um, well, you said we should do it. Yeah. <laughs> sure, follow us I at. Uh, should we keep this on Instagram? Mm-hmm. Uh, should we keep on Twitter? I'm Stephen. I'm at Stephen Moskis. Cool. Where do we find Stevenson. this way? You can follow us at. Should we keep this? <laughs> you don't need to follow me. I'm out. I'm fo- unfollowable. Nope. Withag. Um, Gina underscore Withag. Yes. Um, next week we'll be back with 1985, which oh, is 85? what's happening. Oh my God. Wow. Oh dear God. Um, it's back to the future. Right. And out of Africa. Oh yeah. Oh, oh right. yeah. No, wait, but I think we said, is this oh, also the Cosby show? Well, here the thing, the thing is the Cosby show, we could do the Cosby show in 1988, because Rain Man mm. is both top grossing Got it. and best picture. We'll probably do that. Okay. Yeah. A lot of great we'll ass out. music. I feel Once like this again, is just becoming the time where uh, yeah. I just read the music out. It has become that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but you know, fucking. Uh, well, actually, oh, you know what? 1985, kind of weak. Take okay. on me, money for nothing. Everybody wants to rule the world. Wake me up before you go, go. Go, go. I'm just repeating. I'm echoing. You repeated me. I can repeat you. Go, go. (laughs) Like a virgin and careless whisper. Don't know that one. Yes, you do. Okay. Feet will never dance again. Here's your hashtag for the week, Stephen. Are you ready for it? No rhythm. Are you ready for it? No, it's easy. Your hashtag for the week is hashtag 
the taste of death is on my lips. <laughs> Good luck with that one. <laughs> I'm really excited. Oh, great. And I'm going to close this off with some sweet, sweet haikus. Okay. Token or hero? Black women? Female police? Well-intentioned? Flawed. Lots of question marks. That <laughs> was a question, question mark haiku. <laughs> Here's the next one. Oh, we didn't actually talk about one of the things I mentioned in this. Let's, you'll oh, figure no. it out oh, which one. Okay. Well, Vengeance, say that for another podcast. music, God. Boobs popping out everywhere. <laughs> That's opera, baby. <laughs> there are a lot of boobs in everyone's dresses. The corsets, you know. <laughs> they really were very low-cut yeah. dresses with the high, high corsets. Right. Particularly <laughs> when, like, Constanza is, like, under the table. Oh, yeah. When he's, like, Mozart's, like, chasing her oh, yeah. around. He was like, whoa, did we get a little areola peeking out of there? Is the sun rising? Um, that's nipples that's of what they call a nipples of Venus. Hashtag nipples of Venus. That's a, it's a delicacy, mm-hmm. according to Austria. Yep. Actually, it did sound really good. Right. Are we just... That's yeah, Michael's actually going to cut this like, way this early. He's just like, there's going to be an hour. He's just going to cut it an hour and not even bother. <laughs> This podcast is produced by Rock Rising. Come follow us on Instagram, and if you want to hear more podcasts, visit rockrising.org. Thanks.